Amen. Thank you so much, Steve, and the rest of the music and media team for leading us in, uh, in worship this morning of the Lord. Everyone give them a round of applause this morning. <laughs> Praise the Lord for your faithfulness in leading us before the throne in worship and and rehearsing gospel truths to, through song. And so uh, I praise the Lord for our times that we get to, to sing together, to worship the Lord together. Uh, this morning we're going to be in the book of Exodus. We're continuing our series called Pentateuch, which Pentateuch is the name for the first five books of the Bible. Penta meaning five, tuch meaning books. So that's the, uh, the label given to the first five books of the Bible, books written by Moses around the time of the Exodus. And so uh, what we're doing is we are getting a 30,000-foot overview of each of the first five books of the Bible. So so five weeks, one week per book, uh, and we just spent 42 weeks in the book of Acts. And so we we dove deep into the book of Acts, kind of passage by passage, verse by verse, sentence by sentence, just looking at the book of Acts. And uh, it's important to do that so we can get the depth of Scripture. We We can dive in and get all the lessons that are there for us to learn in the book of Acts. But it's also important for us to keep the overall understanding of what books uh, our teaching, to keep this, this larger 30,000-foot view to see what, what the books of the Bible say and what they're teaching, kind of the, the greater narrative of Scripture. And so, uh, so after digging deep and getting out our magnifying glass and digging into the book of Acts, we're going to take a huge step back and just one week per each book for the first five books of the Bible looking at what, what do these books teach? What is it that, that is inside of them? What is it that they are saying to us? What is God communicating to us? through these books. So last week we were in Genesis. This week we're going to be in the book of Exodus. So uh, let me pray for us. We're going to dive into the text this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you uh, communicate to us. You have revealed yourself to us in your word. You you have made yourself known. to. You didn't have to. You didn't have to go out of your way to communicate yourself to us, just, just mere human beings. But God, you have decided to reveal yourself in a way that we can, we can read and know and understand and see just a, a glimpse into who you are. And so, Father, I, I praise you and thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that we would, we would long to know what it says, that we would long to apply it to our lives. God, I pray that you would do a work in us as we study your word, that you would mold us and shape us in the image of Jesus, God, that, that we would leave here better because of our time in the word this morning. God, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us and give us hearts that are, that are ready to apply it. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I love, and I grew up loving, and I still do, I love pickup football games. Like, I love getting a group of, uh, of, of friends or classmates together and, and going out to the field and, and, and having a, a great time playing uh, pickup football games. Now, I love everything about it. I love, I love the camaraderie. I love the, the, the competitive atmosphere. I love throwing perfect touchdown passes only to have my amateur wide receivers drop them, you know, but then throwing horrible passes and those same receivers diving and making ESPN-worthy catches, you know, like, like it always seems to work out that way. But I, I love everything about it, just playing pick up football games, having a, a fun afternoon out on the field and uh, throwing the ball around and playing two-hand touch or sometimes tackle if we're completely reckless and, uh, and just having a good time, right? I love pick up football games, but there's always one really uncomfortable moment of every pick up football game. And it's right before the game starts. Because right before the game starts, the entire group selects two people to be captains. And then those two people in front of everybody have to pick their teams. And what they do, essentially, is in picking their teams, is those two people communicate to the entire group. These are the people that I want on my team, and those are the people that I'm happy to let the other team have. Right? These are my people. Those are not my people. 
And, and as someone who, who has been an early pick and someone who was just left standing there when all the people were picked, like it, I, I can assure you it is much better to be wanted, right, to be picked, to be, to be part of the team than it is to be left on the outside looking in. Right? It is much, much better to be selected and to be desired as, as part of the team. And, and what we see in the book of Genesis as we studied last week, is that, that God was selecting his team. God was making his people. God, and, and God spoke to a guy named Abraham, and he promised Abraham that he would, have, uh, he would make Abraham into a nation, and that this nation, these descendants of Abraham, were going to be his people. So out of all the peoples of the earth, everybody uh, on the planet, God selected the people of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, to be his people. God, was, God drafted his team, God populated his kingdom, and he said that he was going to bless the nation of, uh, of Israel, the descendants of the people of Abraham. That, that was his choice, right? And, and, and we see more specifically in the book of Genesis, what God promised Abraham is that his desc- he and his descendants would be blessed, right? The, the imagery there is, takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the relationship that God had with Adam and Eve. And, and God was going to bless and pour out his blessings upon the people of Israel. The descendants of Abraham were going to have this special relationship with God where they were going to be blessed. The, 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 he also promises that he will make them into a kingdom. They will have a, a land they will possess. Again, this brings up the imagery of the, the Garden of Eden, that there will be a place where, filled with God's people where God is going to inhabit, where God is going to dwell. It brings up this beautiful imagery of the Garden of Eden. That's what God promises to the people of Israel. He also promises to multiply them and to, to make them into a multitude. And he promises that through them, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That's what we see promised to Abraham and to his descendants uh, in the book of Genesis. You can fast forward about 400 years after Abraham. And if you were to, to think about what, how this played out, right, you would think you would, you would, you would find a thriving nation. Right? You think you would find this nation where, where things are going great, where, where there's an abundance of, of food and economic development and life, that, that things are going fantastic because these are God's people. These are the ones who are blessed. These are the ones who are a blessing to the world. You think things would be going amazing, but you fast forward 400 years after Abraham and you, you find the people of Israel. Where you find them is in slavery to Egypt. You see that they are, they are trapped in Egypt being ruthlessly treated by uh, their taskmasters appointed over them by the Egyptian ruler, by the Pharaoh. And, and if you're the Israelites in this day, 400 years after Abraham, you've been told down the line that, that you're the people of God. God has chosen you. And you're trapped in slavery in Egypt. You have to be wondering, are we really the people of God? Did, did God actually choose us? Because it doesn't, it doesn't look like it. Did God actually select us as his people? Because I, I would have thought things would be going a little better for us if that was true. So are we really the people of God? What we see in the book of Exodus is that God answers that question powerfully. We're going to begin in chapter 1. And we see the, the true condition of the Israelites in this day. You see, we get to a glimpse at just how bad it is. In chapter 1, we see that the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. And, and not just that they were doing uh, some labor, but they were doing heavy labor, difficult labor, and they were being treated horribly by their taskmasters. They were being beaten. They had quotas that they had to meet. They were being uh, uh, treated terribly. They were not being fed well. They were not receiving rations and portions adequately. They were being treated 
horribly by the Egyptians. And on top of all of that, on top of being enslaved and treated poorly, the Egyptian leader, the Pharaoh, was afraid of the Israelites. Because the Israelites were doing exactly what God said they would do. They were multiplying and becoming a great multitude of people. Estimates at this point is that the Israelites were, were well over a million people at this point. And so they were multiplying and becoming a great multitude of people in the heart of Egypt. And so Pharaoh was becoming scared of the Israelites. And in order to combat them, in order to, to, to squash their growth and to try to keep them in line, what Pharaoh decided to do is he told uh, all of the midwives, all the people delivering babies in Egypt, he said, if a Hebrew person has a son, if an Israelite has a son, throw it into the Nile. And he commanded that every, he, every Israelite baby boy would be killed tossed into the Nile. Now, praise the Lord, the, the Israelite midwives disobeyed that, and they continued to multiply and continued to become a mighty nation, but they were being treated horribly. Uh, you, things do not get much worse than that, right, in, in terms of how you're being treated by uh, the Egyptians. This is not what we would expect from the people of God, and it's in this horrible environment. It's in, it's in this, this terrible atmosphere that a guy named Moses, an Israelite child, makes his appearance. It's at this point that Moses makes his entrance into the world. His parents, uh, while this uh, command was under, uh, was in force, they, they had a child, a son, named Moses. And instead of killing him and instead of allowing him to be thrown into the Nile, they uh, understandably wanted to keep the child and love the child and raise the child. And so they, they hid Moses away. Did the best they could to, to hide him and, and raise him and, and grow him, but at some point, it became extremely difficult to hide him, right? At, at, at just a few months in, it was extremely hard to, to keep him hidden away from, uh, from the Egyptians. And so what they did is they created a basket, they crafted a basket, and they put Moses in this basket, and they floated the basket down the Nile. And the idea was that they would float the child down, and eventually he would hopefully float to freedom, that somebody would find the basket, somebody would take him out, and he would be raised free from from having to die like all the other Israelite sons. So they floated him down the river, and, and not luckily, uh, but by the power and grace of God, Moses is floating down the river, and he ends up floating directly to the daughter of Pharaoh. So this basket wades across where the daughter of Pharaoh is in the river, and she opens the basket and sees this Hebrew child and says, I want to keep it. And so she takes the child and raises Moses as her own son. So Pharaoh, uh, Moses, who was supposed to die, was supposed to be killed in, uh, uh, the second he was born, is now being raised in the palace of Pharaoh, now being given a wonderful education, is now being trained as a leader, given positions of authority. This, this is a, a remarkable turnaround for Moses, and it has access to all of the riches, all of the wealth of one of the greatest empires on the planet at this time. And that's where Moses stands uh, as he grows older and as he gets into his 30s and 40s. Like he, is, he has been raised in the palace of Pharaoh, but he knows who he is. He knows that he is an Israelite. He knows who his people are. And as he looks out on the nation, he sees the suffering of his fellow Israelites. He sees the, the pain that his people are going through. He sees the, the harsh labor that they're being put under. He sees the, the, the beatings and the oppression that they're enduring. He, he witnesses what's going on, and he decides that he wants to help. So when he sees a taskmaster beating an Israelite, he murders the taskmaster. 
In his mind, he's starting this great moment, this, this upturn, this rebellion. He is freeing Israel, right? He's redeeming them. He's, he's getting them out from under this oppression. He murders the taskmaster. He hides the body. But then eventually, not only do the, do the Israelites not like Moses and reject him for this, but Pharaoh finds out about it. So Moses has to flee from Egypt. He runs, if we can put the, the map up here, he runs. You see Egypt uh, on the far left. He goes across the Sinai Peninsula all the way down to southwest uh, Arabia, all the way down to Midian. He flees all the way out to Midian to this desert community, and he lives there in exile for over 40 years. Like he, he runs away. He has to flee, and that's where he spends decades living in exile. And the only reason that we're talking about Moses at all, the only reason that, that this is important in Scripture is the fact that the Israelites at this point are being treated horribly. They are enslaved. They have, been, they have been treated horribly for decades. Things are going terribly for the Israelites, and they're, they're questioning whether they are God's people. They're wondering if God has forgotten about them entirely. And we get this wonderful comment at the end of Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, meaning the, the 40 years that than Moses spent in Midian. During those decades, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So after 40 years of exile, Moses is tending, this, uh, tending to a flock of sheep. He's shepherding, and he's, he's moving this sheep around, and uh, he ends up moving all the way over to what is uh, a, a mountain called Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And as he's, he's wandering with these sheep, he, he gets to Mount Horeb, and he sees a, a crazy sight. He sees that there's a bush that's on fire, but the bush isn't being burnt. Like the, the, bu- the bush is aflame, but there's nothing happening to the bush. Now, like any sane or rational individual, uh, he decides to investigate a little bit, right? It's not every day that you see this strange sight. In fact, it's not any day that you see this strange sight. So, so Moses decides to, to get closer, to get a better look at this. He investigates a little bit, and, and, and God begins to speak to him out of the bush. I think about how crazy this is for a second. The people of Israel had thought that God forgot about them. They were wondering whether they were God's people at all. Moses, of all people, murdered a guy and spent 40 years wandering in exile in, in Midian. Like, of all people, God speaks to Moses, letting him know that I hear, that I know. This is what God says, chapter 3, verse 5. God tells Moses from this burning bush, he says, Do not come near here. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have truly, surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians 
and to bring them up out of, the, out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to a place, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen their oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So, so God begins to speak to Moses, and he tells Moses that, that he is going to go to Egypt. Moses is commanded to go to Egypt and to talk to Pharaoh, and God is going to use Moses to deliver God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And God makes, God makes Moses a promise. He says, when you do, when you do all the things that I command you to do, when you go to Egypt and talk to Pharaoh, you're going to get out. And when you get out, you're going to come back to this mountain, Mount Sinai, and you're going to worship me here. And that's, that's an important promise to remember because it comes up later in the, the book of Exodus. But God says, you're, you're going to know that it was me, that I got you out when you get out and you arrive back here at this mountain as a people worshiping me. Right after that, just a few verses later, God tells Moses his name. He says, my name is Yahweh, meaning I am. And what God means by that is that, that he is the unchanging God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means if God makes a promise, he doesn't back out of it. And if God says he's going to do something, he has the ability and the power to do it because he, he does not change. And so if, if God makes a promise to make a people out of Abraham, and if God makes a promise to rescue those people out of slavery in Egypt, God says, I'm going to do it because I am Yahweh. I am. We know that God is going to follow through on this promise. And, and a ton of movies have been made about what happens next. Right? Moses leaves Midian. He goes back to Egypt, and he confronts Pharaoh, and he says, let the people of God go. Right? What a, not only is that a great line that plays really well in movies, but, but it's also a great line for the people of Israel. Because again, these are the people that are wondering, are we the people of God? And Moses storms into the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and he says, let the people of God go. Not just let the Israelites go, not just let my kindred people go, let the people of God go. And Moses, uh, the, and Pharaoh, and uh, have, after being confronted by Moses, Pharaoh says, nope, not going to do it. He hardens his heart and says, I'm going to keep the Israelites in slavery. In fact, I'm going to work them harder. I'm going to make things worse for them. Uh, they're going to stay. And then God responds by using Moses to bring about plagues, 10 of them, back to back to back to back to back, 10, ten times. God, God brings 10 plagues on Egypt, because after each plague, Moses goes before Pharaoh and says, let the people of God go. And once again, Pharaoh says no. God turned the Nile into blood. God infested the land of Egypt with flies, with gnats, with frogs, and with locusts. God sent a disease to kill the cattle of the Egyptians. God sent hail to destroy the crops and the land and the people of Egypt. God sent a, a, a darkness, a, a tangible, pervasive darkness among the people of Egypt. God sent boils to break out among the Egyptians. God completely decimated Egypt. 
Like he just, he completely demoralized the people of Egypt. He decimated their country. He decimated their uh, economy. He decimated their food supply. God decimated Egypt. And after every single one of these plagues, Pharaoh said, no, people of God are staying here. I will not let them go. So after those nine plagues in a row, God sent the tenth and final plague. God told the Israelites what he was going to do ahead of time. He told them that he was going to kill every firstborn child in the entire land of Egypt. But he he told the Israelites that he would protect them, he would spare them if they killed a lamb and they painted the, the spotless blood of that lamb on the doorpost. So Israelites, they followed suit, they, they raised the lamb, they killed the lamb, they painted the blood on the doorpost, and then that night, angel of God went through the land of Egypt, and he killed the firstborn child of every person in Egypt. But the houses that had the blood painted on the doorpost, that angel passed over that house and did not go inside. That's why this event is called the Passover. And it's an event that was celebrated by the Israelites for, with feasts for, for generations, because it celebrated their deliverance by God from Egypt. Because once this event took place, once the Passover occurred and the angel went forth, the Israelites, the Egyptians were so demoralized that Pharaoh said, okay, the people of God can go. And not just that, he said, get out of here. Like, like leave my land. And he, he, he basically forces the Israelites out. And the Israelites celebrate. They leave slavery. They are, they are out Praise the Lord. And what's even better about that is that as they leave the people of Egypt, as they are on their way, I want you to notice that God led them. That God himself was leading the people of of Israel. Look with me, chapter 13. Look with me in uh, verse 21. So as the Israelites are leaving Egypt, we see in verse 21 of chapter 13, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God himself was leading his people. If there's any more confirmation that you need that this is the people of God, God himself is directing them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God is leading his people. They are clearly the people of God. And if you needed any more confirmation, it's at this point that we get probably one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. The Israelites, in their travels, made it to the shores of the Red Sea. Possibly the Reed Sea. We're not 100% certain on that. But they made it to the shores of a, a, a big sea, likely the Red Sea. And they, uh, if we could throw the map up here. So they, this, the Red Sea is the south part, uh, but the, this, the canal, the Gulf, uh, the, the Gulf of Suez, uh, is likely about where they landed. So kind of the, the left side, the west side of that Gulf. They make their way over there. They're just wandering around. And they make their way to the sea, and they're celebrating, right? They're, they are cheering because God has rescued them from slavery. They are, they are making their way out of the land of Egypt. And as they approach the shore of the Red Sea, as they, as they walk up to it, they look around, and they see that the army of Egypt is pursuing them. Because after the Israelites left, Pharaoh changed his mind. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, 
And Pharaoh decided that he was going to send his army after Israel and get them back. So you think this, this joyous moment that they are celebrating being released from slavery, getting, getting rescued and delivered from it, and as they get to the sea, they turn around and see that they are pinned in, that they are trapped by the Egyptian army, and they are likely going to be killed or taken back into slavery. And that moment of joy becomes a moment of terror. Right when it looks like they're trapped. Right when it looks like they have nowhere to go, God commands Moses to, to, to wave his staff in front of the sea. And when Moses waves his staff in front of the sea, God parts the waters of the sea and creates a lane of dry land that the Israelites can go through on. As the Israelites go through this lane of dry land between two walls of water, God sent, uh, the, the, the Egyptian army pursues after them, trying to get them, trying to, to bring them back or kill them, and pursues them into the Red Sea. And as the last of the Israelite crosses over and gets out of the Red Sea, God closed the water, and he drowned the Egyptian army. In this one last final display of his undeniable glory and power, that he is the one who redeemed the Israelites. And he is the one that has all glory and honor and power. Not Pharaoh, not the Egyptian might militarily, not the greatest empire on the planet of the day. None of those people have the glory and power. It's God. And he drowned the Egyptian army there in the Red Sea. What a, what a wonderful story, again, that confirms for the Israelites. Like If you were wondering if you're the people of God, take a look at this. Like You walked through a, a, a sea on dry land, and God closed the sea on your enemies. Clearly, they're the people of God. And even further than that, what God, he doesn't just, just deliver them out of slavery. He begins to provide for his people as they're wandering around trying to get to the promised land. He gives them water out of a rock. He gives them bread from heaven called man, that they call manna, which literally translates to what is it, which is, I just love that. But, uh, but they, God gives them water and food. Like, he provides for his people, because they are his people. It's this glorious moment, this, this glorious good news that God has made for himself a people. He has delivered them out of slavery. God uh, fulfills his promise, and the people of Israel, when they cross the Red Sea, they end up going over to the mountain that God told them they would get to. They end up going to Mount Sinai, the, the mountain where Moses met God the first time. And when they get to Mount Sinai, God decides to speak to the people of Israel from the mountain. If you turn to me to chapter 19. God decides to, to communicate with the people of Israel. And this is what he says, chapter 19, beginning in verse 4. God says, you yourselves know, or you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment and my covenant, you will, shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God affirms there on the mountains, on Mount Sinai, He says, You will be my people. You are mine, my treasured possession. You are my kingdom of priests, which means you are supposed to live in a way, like the Israelites were supposed to live in a way that, that glorified God before the world and brought the nations of the world to God. They are to be priests 
between God and the world, trying to bring the rest of the world to God. That was God's design. The people of Israel were to be his people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, the people for his own possession. The thing is, in order to be the people of God, in order for God to dwell among you, you have to perfectly follow God's commands. Notice the conditional statement in verse 5. God says, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. In order for God to dwell among you, in order for you to be the people of God, you have to be perfect. You have to be a holy nation. Because God is holy. God is perfect. So in order for God to dwell among a people and not just totally destroy them, they can't be sinful. They can't be, be rebellious against him. They have to be holy and perfect because God is holy and perfect. And so what God sets out here, beginning in chapter 20, is his requirements in order for them to be his people. Like in order for God to inhabit uh, and dwell among the Israelites, these are the rules and the commands, the requirements that they have to follow. They have to be a holy, perfect nation, and these are the rules that are required for them to follow. We know these rules as the Ten Commandments. God outlines these Ten Commandments in chapter 20. He says, you, can't, you should not have uh, any other gods before me. Do not make an idol. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder, don't steal, uh, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, and don't covet. The Israelites were given these Ten Commandments, and, and the rule was that they needed to follow these perfectly. They needed to obey every single one of these commands absolutely 100% to the letter in order for God to dwell among them. They had to be perfect. God outlines in the following chapters a, a, a little more detail of what it looks like, or what these rules look like in practice, these ten commands, what they look like in detail. And so God gives some situational commands, he gives some political commands, some social commands, and it just, it's just detailing what these rules look like as, uh, among the Israelites, how they're supposed to operate as a people. It gives them a lot more detailed instruction, just kind of fleshing out those rules. But the idea is that they're supposed to do it perfectly. And look at what the people of Israel say in chapter 24. Once God gives them all of the rules, and he says, you, you need to follow these perfectly to be my people. You need to obey my voice and keep my covenant for me to dwell among you and for you to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. This is what they say, chapter 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord, uh, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Look with me in verse 7. Then he took, meaning Moses, he, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in all the hearing of all the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. 
So this is what's known as the, the Mosaic Covenant or the Covenant at Sinai. This is the, the promise that God makes. He says, if you will be perfect, I will dwell among you and you will be my people. And the people of Israel, they, get, they put themselves under the covenant saying, yes, we will do it. We will be perfect. We'll follow all the rules. We'll follow all the laws. We will be perfect and we'll have God dwell among us. We're going to be blessed. We're going to be a blessing. It's going to be great. Like God is going to dwell among us because we're going to be a perfect, holy people. We're going to follow all of the commands that God has given. And they do a great job of that for about 10 minutes. Right? They follow the commands that God has given for just a few days. But look at me, uh, go all the way to chapter 32. God gives these commands for what, what they're supposed to be doing. He also gives commands for, for his dwelling place among them called the tabernacle. He gives them all these detailed commands about what that's supposed to look like and, and how, how it's supposed to be constructed. And so all of these commands that God gives the people of Israel, they said, all right, we're going to follow them. We're going to do it perfectly. And then after, this, after the covenant is affirmed, after they say we're going to follow it, Moses goes back up the mountain and he spends about 40 days there with God. Just him and God. And, and the Israelites can see it. They can see that there's smoke and fire consuming the mountain. And then Moses is up on the top of the mountain, him and God just talking and communicating. God is, is, is uh, having a conversation with Moses. It goes on for about 40 days. And after about 40 days, the people of Israel get a little agitated. And they say, well, we don't really know what happened to Moses. Uh, so they ask Moses' brother Aaron to make them an idol, a golden calf that they can worship. That that. God is on the mountain beside them. Like they can see the fire and smoke on the mountain. They just said that they're going to follow the commands of God perfectly. And 40 days later, they say, hey, Moses, uh, hey, Aaron, can you make us a golden calf that we can follow? And Aaron gets their gold jewelry. He melts it down. He forms it into a golden calf. And he says, this is your God. And the people of Israel say, yep, that's our God. And they, they worship this golden calf. Right beside, still on Mount Sinai, like just right next to the same place that they said they're going to perfectly follow God's law. They begin to, to worship this golden calf. And God is understandably upset. And God, just, just 40 days later, they couldn't get more than two months out from when they said they would perfectly follow the law, and they've already abandoned God for this golden idol. They said this golden idol, in chapter 32, they, when they pointed to this calf, they said, this is the thing that got us out of Egypt. And God's like, no, that was, that was me. Like, I just did that. God is understandably upset, and while he's talking to Moses on this mountain, he tells Moses, I'm going to wipe him out. Like, I'm going to completely destroy the Israelites. I'm going to, to uh, uh, just annihilate them, and I'm going to start over with you. Like, we're just going to do a hard restart with Moses now as the, the new Abraham uh, leading the new people of God. And Moses, he prays for the Israelites, and he asks God not to destroy them. And God says, okay, I won't destroy them. I won't wipe them out. But devastatingly, this is what God says in chapter 33. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. 
lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God tells the Israelites, go. Go to the land of Canaan. I promised Abraham that his descendants would have it. So go up, inhabit the land, go live there. I'll drive out the people before you. I'll make sure that it's inhabitable for you, inhabitable for you that it is habitable for you. That's what I meant to say. Uh, like, I will make sure that you can live there, but I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to dwell among you. I will not bless you. You will not be my people that I dwell among. And this is, this is devastating news for the Israelites. Like, this is a devastating word for Moses to hear. Like, they're the people of God. They're the people that God shows. The whole point is that God dwells among them. The whole point that was that God was going to be among them, and they were going to be his people, and he was going to be their God, that God was going to, to dwell among them. And God says, go, I'm not going with you. Moses falls on his face in prayer before God, and this is what he says, verse 15 of chapter 33. Moses says to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in, the, in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Like, I, he is falling down on his face before God, saying, God, do, I, if you aren't going to go with us, then we don't want to go. The whole point of us being your people, the, the most important thing about us is that you're going to dwell with us. And so if you're not coming with us, then we don't want to leave, God. You have to go with us. We, we want to be your people. We want you to be our God. You have to dwell among us. So, so don't send us out without your presence. And in response to Moses' prayer, God says, all right, I'll go with you. I will go. I will dwell among you. And what they do is they essentially do a hard restart on the covenant. In chapter 34, they, they renew the covenant. And once again, God says, you have to perfectly follow my rules. And the Israelites once again say, all right, we're going to perfectly follow your rules. We're going to do it. And in chapters 35 to 40, God, uh, the, the Israelites begin constructing the tabernacle. They begin, they begin building the dwelling place of God, this tent where God is going to, to the fullness of the presence of God is going to dwell. And so they, they make the Ark of the Covenant. They make, they make an altar for offerings. They make the tabernacle, the tent itself. They make all the different pieces that God told them to make. They create the dwelling place for God in their camp, just according to God's specifications. And we get this wonderful moment at the very end of Exodus, chapter 40, beginning in verse 34. It says this, chapter 40, verse 34. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. God dwelled with his people. For the first time since the Garden of Eden, 
the fullness of the presence of God dwelled among a people. That God inhabited this tabernacle. God had, had chosen a people for himself, a people for his own possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God had made for himself a people, and God dwelled among them. And that's the beautiful truth that we see in the book of Exodus. It's that God is creating a people for himself, and you are invited. God is making for himself a people, and the opportunity is available for you to become part of it. See, just like the ancient Israelites, every single one of us is enslaved. You're born in slavery to sin and death. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, he says that every single one of us is enslaved to sin, which means our nature is naturally in rebellion against God. We will naturally sin against him. We will naturally rebel when when given the option. We will naturally choose sin, the things that God has said not to do. We are all people who are enslaved and trapped to sin, and it doesn't matter how hard we try. We will never overcome and overpower this nature. We are all sinners enslaved to sin. We see this play out with the Israelites. Even though God had just rescued them from physical slavery, they were still enslaved to sin. And so when they said, yep, we're going to perfectly follow the law, we're going to perfectly do what God said, just 40 days later, they were worshiping an idol. They were incapable of perfectly following the law because they were enslaved to sin. And we see that same thing playing out in our lives. You see it in your life. No matter how hard you try, to be a good person, no matter how hard you try to to be perfect, no matter how hard you try to be moral, you will not be perfect. None of us will. And any of us who are honest would say that, that we are not perfect, that we are all sinners, that we are all broken, that we are all have rebelled against God. Like No matter how hard we try, we can't be perfect. And that's a problem. Because God's requirement to dwell with us God's requirement for for entrance into his eternal kingdom, God's requirement for heaven is perfection. And not one of us measures up. But God is creating a people for himself. And he's doing so through Jesus. God has decided that he's going to make for himself a people that he's going to rescue his people from slavery to sin, that he's going to deliver his people and give them freedom and give them citizenship in his eternal kingdom. And God has decided that the way that he's going to do that is by the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. The book of Exodus is full of imagery that points forward to Jesus. Jesus is the Passover lamb, the one sacrificed for us, whose blood covers over us and saves us. Jesus is a better Moses who leads his people and delivers and redeems his people from slavery to sin and death. Not just rescuing them from physical slavery, but redeeming them and rescuing them from their spiritual state of slavery. Jesus feeds and supplies and gives life to his people like water out of a rock and like bread from heaven. Jesus is the one by whom God has decided to save and create a people. It is by his death and resurrection that we can be saved. And so the way to become part of the people of God is to place our faith in Jesus, to believe that we really can follow the Lord, that we really can become part of the people of God. Let's place our faith and trust 
in Jesus. God is creating a people for himself. And you are invited. You can do your absolute best to try to earn your spot in the kingdom of God. You can do your your best to lift up the Ten Commandments and to follow them all and to earn your spot in God's eternal kingdom, to earn the favor of God, but you never will. Because God's standard is perfection, and you don't measure up. None of us do. And so if you're relying on your good works as the reason that God is going to let you into heaven, if you're relying on your goodness as the reason that you have the favor of God, let, let me, I want you to hear me say this. God is not impressed by your less than perfect attempts. God's standard is perfection. And you're not going to reach it. None of us do. But the good news is that God is creating a people for himself through Jesus, and you are invited through faith in Christ to become part of the people of God. God does it. We can't earn the favor of God, but God gives us as a gift his favor through Jesus, and you can receive it through faith in Christ. If you're in, there, if you're in here this morning and you have placed your faith in Jesus, then you are part of the people of God. Peter tells us in 1 Peter that we are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people from God's own possession. That is straight out of Exodus 19. We are the people of God. And like the Israelites, we are supposed to be a people that live in a way that brings God glory and, 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 and glorifies God among the nations. The Israelites were supposed to bring God glory and bring the rest of the nations to him. We as a people are supposed to glorify God and to bring people to the cross. Some of us this morning, are not living in a way that glorifies God. Some of us in, in this morning are, are not living in a way that, that reflects the fact that we are part of the people of God. And if that's you, if, you've, if you're saying one thing about Jesus and you're rebelling against him and living hypocritically over here, if you're going back to sin that God has already rescued you from, and this morning what God is calling you to do is to repent, to turn back to him and to recognize that you have been set free from sin and death. And we need to live a life that, that, that acts like it. So this morning, if that's you, in just a second, we're gonna, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. If that's you, and, and you, are, you have sinned against God, you, you are part of the people of God, but you have sinned against him, what, I'm, what, I, uh, what I ask you to do is before you stand and sing, to, to bow your head to the Lord and to pray and to confess your sins before him and to rely on his grace to empower you to live a life that reflects the fact that you are a holy people. It reflects the fact that you are part of the people of God. And if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, then God's call to you this morning is to become part of the people of God. God has already made the way in. God is calling you. He's invited you. Will you trust in Jesus this morning? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the eternal life that's available in Jesus. I thank you for the, the redemption and the deliverance from slavery to sin and death. And God, that you have brought us into life through the death and resurrection of your son. I pray, Father, for anyone here who has not trusted in you, who has not followed you, Father, I pray that this morning would be the morning that they go from death to life, that this morning would be the morning that they are rescued from slavery to sin. Father, I pray that they would put their faith and hope in you. 
And Father, for, for those of us here who, who follow you, who are part of the people of God, I pray that we would live lives that would reflect it, that we would live lives that glorify you and bring people to the cross. And so, Father, if there's anything in our lives that do not glorify you and do not lift up the name of Jesus, Father, I pray that you, by your grace, would, would rid us of those things and empower us to live a life of a holy nation, kingdom of priests, a people for your possession. Father, we love you and praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.